0: Welcome to Episode 26, Employment Law and Behavioral Health, by Nick Merkin, California Healthcare Attorney. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello and welcome. Um, this is a seminar on Employment Law Issues and Addiction Treatment. My name is Nick Merkin. Um, I'm the CEO of a consulting firm based in Los Angeles called Compliagent. Uh, what we do is service different kind of healthcare providers uh, both in the state of California and nationally um, and help them build out and maintain their compliance infrastructure. Um, a big portion of our client base is in the addiction treatment space And um, so I welcome you um, if you're, you know, part of uh, part of that industry within healthcare, but I will also say that um, for those of you who work in a slightly different area of healthcare, a lot of these issues will apply um, equally if you work at or manage a healthcare facility of any kind, skilled nursing facility, for example, in a hospital system or wherever. Um, so again, welcome, and we're gonna dive right into things. Um, But first, let me just give you a few disclaimers about things. So um, one thing that I always need to say, because I am a lawyer, is that anything you're gonna learn here today um, should be classified as general legal discussion, Um, not specific legal advice um, to anyone individually or with respect to any potential problem that you have. Um, I would urge you and encourage you, um, use the information that you've received here um, today for things like issue spotting, to develop a certain sensitivity to some of the issues that um, um, are very common, and that people who manage and work in addiction treatment and other kind of healthcare facilities should know about. Um, but if you have specific questions as they pertain to you, as they pertain to your organizations, be sure to ask um, legal advice. Um, to somebody you trust, an attorney in your jurisdiction who's familiar um, with the specific employment-related laws, um, in in you know in your own hometown, so to speak, um, and you know it goes without saying there's no attorney-client relationship that's you know that I'm developing with anyone in particular um, by saying this. And um, one thing I should also say is kind of a programmatic note a lot I am based in California and I'm a California barbed lawyer so um, by definition a lot of the examples that I'm going to give whether it's situations or specific statutes um, have sort of a California bias to them Um, there are federal laws uh, federal employment laws of course that are going to apply equally nationally and across different states Um, Many of the issues are going to be similar if you're in a state outside of California. But first of all, um, you know, just like I said before, you should, we should proceed with a little bit of caution when you're talking about the specifics. And again, the purpose of a lot of this is you are going to find similar issues and common issues no matter what state you're in a lot of the guidance and solutions that's non-specific to um, you know, specific rules or specific regulations are going to equally apply to you. Um, and that's really what the purpose of this and, and what should be internalized here. And again, if you have a specific question, if you're inside California, um, you know, Talk to someone who's competent to answer that question. If you're outside of California, even more so because some of the specific dates, numbers, dollar amounts, requirements may not be the same in your home state um so let's jump right into uh to some of the material because we've got a lot that we'd like to cover um in a little bit less than an hour to do so give you a little bit of a roadmap about what what we hope to address today Um, we'll talk about some concerns with the employee interview and hiring process Um, there's a lot of nuances to that and and, um, it's actually a big risk area for a lot of healthcare providers and specifically in the addiction treatment space um a little bit about the nature of the working relationship and different kinds of policies and procedures and notification obligations that you should have. We'll talk about harassment and employment discrimination and those kind of risk areas. A little bit about wage and hour obligations, things to sensitise yourself to. In other words, you know, break times, rest times, meal periods that might be required. Um, a little bit about employee discipline and the termination process, and then somewhat about post termination pitfalls and issues um, so let's kind a lot of the way this is going to work is, you know, just talking about situations that come up really commonly, like I said, um, in an addiction treatment facility or any kind of behavioral health facility. Um, and as I said, a lot of this is going to be equally applicable across the board, um, wherever you might work in healthcare. But um, you know, let's talk about background checks for job applicants. Um, a couple of pitfalls to keep in mind. Generally, background checks. Are permissible for um, for job applicants. A couple of nuances that apply. Um, they should be conducted uniformly. And what I mean by that is, um, don't create a system where you're background checking certain individuals and not others. That's going to open you up to a claim that you might be being discriminatory. You know, maybe you're only doing it for. Background checks for individuals that come from a specific race, a specific gender, etc. Um, etc. Et that's you know, that's going to create a lot of risk for you to do that, and it's also not the right thing to do. Um, you are also not allowed to require the prospective employees to pay the costs of that employment screening, um, so you know okay to do that you can't make for example an application fee for someone um, that they have to actually hand over and pay and reimburse that Um, you know that's at the employer's initiative that's a and therefore the cost is is going to be borne by the employer one other thing to keep in mind um, in many states the laws related to performing credit checks on individuals um, are complex Um, California included. If you're going to go ahead and make a credit check, part of the background check on an employee, and this is often done, um, make sure you're following both federal and state laws in your in your jurisdiction. For example, federally, there is something called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And there are certain steps and disclosures you need to make and certain permissions you need to obtain from the individual for whom you're you're requesting a credit check. So, you know, make sure that you really want to do that. If you're going to go ahead and do that, it's a little bit of a risk area because, um, the law does protect people's credit scores, um, you know, from, from outside knowledge. So just make sure you're, you're walking the straight and narrow on that, so to speak. Um, let's talk a little bit about an arrest record, something that might come up, um, during a background check. Um, so, here in California, there's, uh, we've instituted something called the ban the box law. And that basically means that um, whereas in the past it was permissible um, to ask someone about their past criminal history, um, now there's restrictions on how you can ask that. And you can't actually make what's called a pre-offer inquiry into, uh, um, into their conviction history. You actually have to make an offer, and then you can make it conditional on um, that kind of that kind of check. And if you are going to disqualify someone for a job or a position in your organization for that, um, it has to have the the actual conviction has to have a direct and adverse relationship to the job. Um, so, for example, if it was for a crime that happened so long ago. That it could be said to be not really relevant today that's something you should be concerned with if it's for a subject matter that really doesn't relate to the position they're going to have in your organization it's something minor it's something um you know really attenuated and not related that's a risk area and you should think about um you, you know, whether or not it's permissible to use that as a basis for denial of employment, um, you know, keep to the what the law allows the purpose to be is, um, you know, making sure that someone that you're about to hire isn't going to be a danger. Internally or externally in your organization and particularly not and particularly when it's a case of danger to clients. So if you keep that in mind, um, you'll wind up staying more on the right side of things. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some other issues like asking a prospective employee about salary history. So at least in California, effective in the beginning of 2018, um, employers became prohibited from seeking a salary history information on job applicants. Now let me be clear about one thing. An applicant can volunteer their salary history if they want to. It simply cannot be required by the by the employer. So for various reasons an applicant may want to reveal that salary history, uh, to his or her employer. Maybe that's part of the negotiation process, um, for their, what compensation they might get in the new position. That's okay. Um, you know, if the, uh, the candidate himself or herself, um, has to do that though on a voluntary basis. Um, so you can't, um, You know, you can't disqualify someone from candidacy because they won't reveal that information. And, you know, don't ask it. Um, Other issues that come up, and this is a question that I often get asked, social media. Um, People, a lot of information can be gleaned from a job candidate's social media presence. Um, That is good in many ways because it enables you to get a more full picture of um, a prospective employee however there are some risks and pitfalls related to that and this is and that's the following you want to make sure that um, you are not gathering information about something that would be inappropriate to ask about um, for example the fact that the individual might be in a protested category let's give an example like pregnancy um, You can look at social media, but when you get that information, and let's say, you know, to give an example, that it becomes clear to you that the job applicant is pregnant, and you didn't know that from the interview, you are actually prohibited from asking about that, but you see that because you look at someone's Facebook page, for example, and you see, you know, congratulations, uh, you're expecting type of posts on. You cannot use that information um, as the basis for denial of the job application. Um, So a lot of employers will actually tell the people involved in the interview process, Not to look at social media um, to protect themselves from that because um, you're kind of gaining information that if it's used improperly, at least you have the potential to use it improperly, and that can create a risk area um, for organizations. So, you know, think through how much risk you want to bear on that, how important it might be to get that information, and make sure that you're educating people throughout your organization, if they're part of the interview process, about what information um, is permissible to use as the basis for denial of a job application, or, you know, in consideration for employment. Um, So let's talk about drug testing policies and drug-free work policies. Obviously, in the addiction treatment space, um, this is something important. Um, you know, you're generally treating individuals um, who have issues with drug dependency, having employees, particularly counselors and those with direct interaction with clients um, who are, you know, using narcotic substances or drug related things um, is obviously going to be problematic. And of course, in many states, and this is California included, which is now has medical marijuana policy, and a recreational marijuana use policy, um, this can become a little bit of a sticky situation. So let's talk about the medical sides of things first. Now, you are permitted as a California employer um, to maintain a drug-free work environment. Um, Let's think about it this way. Just because someone can use alcohol or can smoke cigarettes to give an analogous example, doesn't mean that you need to permit them in your work environment. So that's absolutely fine. Um, and just like you wouldn't tolerate an employee, an employee drinking on the job. And this is true, certainly within the addiction treatment space, but it doesn't matter if you're Starbucks or, you know, any or target. You wouldn't tolerate someone drinking on the job. Um, what gets a little bit more complex is the case of medical marijuana, because at least by state law, and this is true in California and many other states, if it is seen that there's a medical need for uh, the individual to, you know, be using be using marijuana while on the job, um, and it's truly, you know. medically necessary you can run into a problem with the american with disabilities act Um, and you can run into problem with a lot of state law provisions and the law may take the position that denying someone the ability to use marijuana while on the job if it in fact is medically indicated um is the same thing as telling someone, well, you can't take penicillin or antibiotics while you're on the job, um, which would be problematic. So, you know, treat medical marijuana as you would any other prescribed medication, um, if it's being taken or if it's being suggested um, that it's medically necessary that said make your expectations and consequences clear regarding job duties and the ability to meet those obligations meaning if that's true and you know there is a medical ne- medically necessary use you still have the right as an employer to say if this is going to interfere with your ability to do this job well I can't permit you to do that at the workplace. So, you know, that's still there. No one saying that um, someone can walk around inebriated, intoxicated, um, or, you know, what have you, when they're doing a job that would be impossible to do properly um, if that were the case. So, you know, identify roles and different responsibilities that have the potential of putting people at risk and use conditional offers during employee selection that outlines the company's policies and expectations. For example, if you're gonna make someone an offer, you can make that offer conditional on acceptance of the policies and procedures and the HR policies and procedures of your organization. And if one of those expectations is clearly outlined as a drug-free workplace, that has to be agreed to um, you know, as a condition of acceptance of the offer if you set it up that way. And it's a good practice. And, you know, communicate and reinforce company policy on drug and alcohol abuse within your organization. Again, that's really good practice and that's going to protect you. And, you know, provide the training you need and make sure that your managers can, you know, have learned to appropriately identify people who might be unfit for work um, because of a condition, uh, you know, a certain narcotic condition and, you know, what the consequences of that might be. So let's move on a little bit to some of the more traditional issues um, after someone is hired. So, one of the big issues um, in employment law, and this goes for healthcare organizations, behavioral health organizations, or any other type of employer really um, in the United States, is the distinction between an employee and an independent contractor. And most states have similar but pretty well developed tests or indicia, I would call them, of how you classify someone. Treating someone like they're an independent contractor when you really should be treating them as an employee is called misclassification. And there's reasons that somebody might want to do that and that you might want to, you know, push someone over the line or in in your consideration to be an independent contractor, namely because things like employment taxes, um, things, like vac- things like sick days, things like benefits don't accrue by individuals that are independent contractors. So because of this, the law is very sensitive um, to misclassification of individuals because it's not fair to them. Um, and it's also not fair to the government who's collecting those taxes. Um, so, you know, historically... Independent contractors are considered self-employed and employees are subject to the employer's control over the manner and means by which the worker performed the work. So control in this context means things like, do you set the hours for that individual? Do you tell the individual what location they need to go to during those specific hours? Do you set a certain dress code? Are they wearing a uniform? Are there certain tools or materials that belong to you as the organization um, that you're requiring them to use? If all those things are true, um, many of those are indicia, indicia that are used both in California and in other states to push someone towards classification as an employee rather than an independent contractor. Here in california as a result of um, a pretty recent case in 2018 we now have something called the abc test um and this is similar in thinking again you know let me caution you um there's going to be slight nuances and differences depending on what state you might be in but this is similar in thinking um and in attitude so it's a good analysis to go through again by all means ask specific questions to someone who's legally competent in your jurisdiction and will know those nuances but nevertheless you know free from control or direction so if you want to classify someone as an independent contractor they need to be free from your control and direction in the ways that we talked about and even in the ways of doing their work um that they perform work outside the business as usual work so generally an independent contractor is someone who doesn't do something that's exactly the same as the rest of your employees. You're gonna have a very difficult argument if nine of your counselors are considered employees and you hired a 10th and just made them an independent contractor because, you know, you didn't want to worry about things like unemployment insurance and what if, and, and you know, not paying payroll taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the last one of these indicia is customarily engaged in independent business, providing the same services as those being provided. So if someone has their own corporation, if they're, you know, a consultant, for example, who works... With a number of different healthcare organizations doing the same thing. That's gonna push towards the definition of an independent contractor, not an employee. Um, so, you know, when there's evidence like that, make sure that you document it. And this is something, documentation is something that I would say is an overlay for all of this, particularly true in this case. When you're going through your process, of deciding whether you're going to classify someone as an independent contractor or as an employee, make sure that you document um, your reasons. You know, if there are things like the person has an independent company, the person works for other um, clients as well, document that stuff. Don't rely on the individual to get that to you because you may have to answer this question a year two years from now and that person might not be that motivated at that time to provide you with the information you need to defend your organization against a claim that um that individual was actually should have been classified as an employee um so you know it's a very important distinction because of the li- of the tax liability. And if you make the wrong decision, you get into the crosshairs of the taxing authorities, they can make you not only pay fines and penalties, but also back pay a lot of the taxes, Social Security, Medicare, income tax um, for those employees. And you would have to back pay things like overtime, meal, p- meal periods and rest breaks, um, and more things like that that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so it's a sensitive and nuanced discussion. And if you need help in getting it, then um, you know, by all means reach out to the person within, with, uh, with expertise in that. Um, in a similar vein, there's employees that we classify as exempt versus non-exempt. And it is not the same thing as employee versus an independent contractor. Um, and it doesn't always depend on whether the employee is salaried or not. Um, A salaried employee can be both exempt and non-exempt. So what does it mean to be exempt? So you're exempt from wage and hour loss, things like meals and rest breaks and overtime and minimum wage. Um, So generally... Employers like having exempt employees, but you have to reach a certain threshold to get that exemption. Um, there's something called, for example, a managerial exemption, which is pretty much the one that might apply in your cases um, with your organization. So, what's that exemption? If you're primarily engaged in what's called exempt work. And definition of exempt work if you exercise discretion and independent judgment more than 50% of the time. So basically what the law is trying to articulate is a manager level individual can be exempt. You also have to, at least in California, earn a minimum monthly salary of no less than double of California's minimum wage for full-time employment. So in 2018, that's $45,760. Be very careful though, even if you're from California, minimum wage is changing on a yearly basis, um, year by year. Don't rely on the number that might have been true in 2017 for 2018, and certainly not on the number that might have been appropriate for minimum wage um, for 2018 and 2019. So I'm even a little bit remiss to give you a number because you may be listening to this at a time when the minimum wage has changed. Um, so let's say that you have employees that don't fall under the exempt category, and those are gonna be probably the majority of your employees. Um, so what kind of obligations do you have for them? Um, minimum wage, for example, overtime or double time, depending on if they're you know, working in excess number of daily hours or weekly hours. Meal periods and rest breaks, and we'll talk about a little bit of that. You have to give them pay stubs you have to reimburse them for business related expenses um, you know things like uniforms even things like cell phones um, if you require them to have them for work reasons the employer needs to pay for so it can be quite a burden to have non-exempt employees but If you misclassify, you know, similar to an independent contractor versus an employee, if you misclassify an employee um, as exempt when they're truly not exempt, you open yourself up to a lot of potential liability and risk. And again, if you get in the government's crosshairs on this, or even an individual's crosshairs, because there's plaintiff's attorneys out there that take these kind of cases, and... You may have to back pay people for those benefits and those uh, salary obligations. And there's fines and penalties that are going to be involved as well. So again, make sure you're seeking competent advice about some of this stuff. Um, meal, meal period obligation. So in California, an employee gets, I should I should cl- clarify, a non-exempt employee is due a 30-minute unpaid um meal period uh, that's provided no later than the employer's fifth hour of work. So for example, if you start work at 8 a.m. by noon, you have to offer that employee um, an hour meal break. Now, to be sure, again, that meal break is generally unpaid um, and an employee can actually waive that and continue to work for an hourly wage if he or she wants. I would encourage you, if you're allowing that, that you get those waivers in writing. Um, There are many, many cases out there where an employee comes back after years of doing this, never took their meal break, um, and... Then accuses the employer of withholding that meal break from them. And the employer says, What are you talking about? You never, you never, you you know, you told me you didn't want it. You'd rather leave earlier in the day and work through lunch, so to speak. Um, And the employee says, No, I didn't. You told me it was prohibited. And, you know, you want to be able to defend yourself and defend your organization by having written authorization from the employee and a written understanding that they know that they're. Able to take a meal break, but they, but you know, they made their own decision to not to do that. Um, there's also rest break obligations. Now, rest break obligations are different than meal breaks in the sense that number one, they're paid. Um, they're also only ten minutes, and you know, depending on what state you're in, but I'll tell you for California, um, if you work from three and a half to six hours during that period, you get a ten-minute rest break. Six to ten, you get another one. 10 to 14 hours, you get a third. Um, and to be clear, this is different than your, your meal breaks. Um, you know, one time doesn't count to the other time. So you might get your, um, 30 minute meal break and then you also will get, um, the 10 minute rest break. It doesn't, you know, sort of meld or merge into the other or get subsumed into the other. So, you know, make sure that you're not confusing those and that your employee understands the difference as well so that they don't have concerns and that they're getting what they're due. Um, so let's talk a little bit um, about um, some of the pitfalls related to that. So for example, um, I did mention that an employer doesn't have to mandate that their employee take, um, take those breaks, but you should be aware that no work can be done during a break period for it to count as a break. So if into a 10 minute rest period break, you're five minutes in and you then go ahead and call the employee and say, I really need to talk to you now, or you just really need to send this one email or, answer this one call even if the email takes 15 seconds you haven't given that employee the requisite 10 minute break you have to give it you kind of have to start the clock again so um be careful about that you can't just subtract out the 15 seconds of time that the employee might uh you know might have responded to that email etc etc um You know, if you don't provide breaks, again, um, you can be due for fines and penalties and stuff like that. Um, So be careful about it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about vacation and paid time off. So at least in California, there's actually no obligation um, to give an employee vacation days or paid time off. But if an employer does provide it, and that's gonna be most of you, um, that's gonna trigger certain obligations. For example, you have to give it consistently. Um, You you can't discriminate against certain classes or against certain people um, and be arbitrary about who you're granting time off to. Have a policy about it in your organization, make it consistent across the board to similarly situated employees, um, and make sure that it's followed. Unfortunately, just the way the laws are written, um, it becomes very difficult to make exceptions for people. You know, for example, let's say um, one of your employees, and maybe this is someone who's worked with you for years, is you know going to their sister's wedding, you know, in Europe. Um, You may be tempted to say, "Hey, you know what? Take an extra week." Um, Be careful about doing that kind of thing, even though it might come from a good place because you can then open yourself up to claims from other employees saying favoritism saying discrimination against them etc etc um so unfortunately um a lot of times best intentions can you know even result in risk so you know be careful about that um sick days by contrast by the way at least in california um are required so if you um if you have an employee who works 30 or more days within a year, um, you have to provide them with a certain amount of sick days. And um, there's different methods by which you can do that. You can give what's called an upfront award, which means you know, in the beginning of the year, you just say, um, this is how many sick days you have, use them as you will, and when you run out of them, you don't have them anymore. Um, can be easier to document that way, that's why a lot of people do it that. Um, that way there's also, you know, what's called the accrual method, which means that you say, you know, for every 30 days you've worked for me, you get a certain um, number of days of, of sick days. And um, there's actually a minimum that you have to give at least one hour per every 30 days worked. Um, that's a pretty small minimum. I and mean, I would say that the, you know, most organizations you should be aware do give more than that. I mean, obviously, especially when you're working with clients and patients and in healthcare organizations, you don't want people coming to work sick. So there's, you know, very good reasons to give above the minimum. Um, but you know, that's what they are and you should make sure that at the very least that's what you're following. Um, so we talked a little bit um, earlier on in this, in this talk about um, discrimination. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the concerns and some of the ways that we can um, protect ourselves from some of those claims. So to start, though, it's important to understand a concept called um, a protected class. And a protected class is a group that's specifically protected from employment discrimination. Um, happens to be that California has more protected classes than any other state in the country, um, but every state has a certain number of protected classes. So, you know, the current list for California um, is race, religion, color, national origin, ancestry, disability, both mental and physical, different medical conditions and genetic information, marital status sex, gender, and gender identity, gender expression, age, sexual orientation, and military and veteran status. So what that means is if you fall under, into one of those classes, or if an individual who's your employee falls under one of those classes, then if that individual receives unfavorable treatment, either in hiring, in discharge, in promotion, um, or any other facet of employment really, um, th- that may be termed employment discrimination. So you know, what would the employee need to show to prove that? So number one, like we said, membership in that protected class, um, they would actually have to show discriminatory intent by the employer. Um, that's a little bit hard to prove but um, you know going back to my admonition about documentation, documentation documentation, you want to make sure whoever the employee is and this doesn't always it doesn't only go for an employee in a protected class um, that if you are making an adverse decision especially with regard to them, termination, Um, Not promoting someone, etc., etc., that you are documenting the reasons why. And that probably starts before the issue becomes acute. That starts on the first day that that employee, like for example arrives late to work. Don't wait till it becomes too big of a problem because it's going to be really, really difficult to go back and document things that might have happened months earlier. You won't have the memory, you won't have the recall, you won't have the paperwork, you won't have the evidence. Um, And the reason you wanna document that is because of this discriminatory intent requirement. You wanna make sure you are going to take, by definition, you know, what I would call an adverse employment action against an employee, and it's going to happen because you have to as a manager. You want to make sure, though, that when you do that, you are backing up sound, you know, professional, appropriate reasons for taking that action. Um, and the better you document and the earlier you document things, um, the better off you're going to be. Unfortunately, sometimes that means, you know, that kind of leads to a culture of, you know, almost over-documentation. But, um, you know, again, you, you want to be able to do that. Um, so, again, so, you know, what would have to be proven? Membership in the protected class, discriminatory intent. There would have to be an actual adverse employment action. And then you there needs to be a proof of a causal link between the discriminatory intent, And the adverse action. And there also has to be damages, which are, you know, probably not that difficult to prove, because if you terminate someone, if you don't promote someone to a higher level position that might carry a higher salary, etc, etc, that's gonna, you know, satisfy that. And, you know, the remedies for this, um, you can be forced to pay lost past wages, lost future wages, there can be damages for things like emotional distress um, and even the attorney's fees that um, that the employee might have incurred in, in working a case. There can even be punitive damages. So um, one thing I would add to a lot of this is, you know, by definition today, we're talking a lot about law and regulation. Um, so a lot of my examples, and I'm, you know, kind of sticking to um, the different nuances. One thing that I, that I always like to say is, Sometimes that's secondary. And what I mean by that is you have reputational issues of your organization, um, particularly in the addiction treatment space. You know, your brand, your marketing, your reputation in the community um, is your life's blood. And, you know, having cl- employment related concerns, even though they may not relate um, to the treatment of clients or any kind of delivery of care, um, it's a small world. It gets out there. These things can be very public. So even setting aside the legal ramifications and monetary ramifications of things, yet another reason that you want to stay on the right side of a lot of these requirements. Um, so you know, definitely keep that in mind. So let's talk a little bit about you know how we protect ourselves and try to prevent. Um, you know, these kind of discrimination claims. So the first way is have a written anti-harassment policy in your policies and procedures. There's a lot of great examples of these. These are easy to find um, in publicly available information. Um, actually, in California, um, I'm sorry, actually, nationally, um, you're required to take, you know, any reasonable stance to prevent harassment from occurring. Um, and that's a in the fair employment act um having a stated policy anti-harassment has been seen as evidence of fulfilling this so you know no matter what size organization you are have a written policy um that spells out protected classes creates a complaint process or a disciplinary process within the organization so you don't have managers um you know, doing things differently, inconsistently from one another or with respect to different employees. That's what can really open yourself up to, s- to some jeopardy and liability. Um, you know, have, con- have confidentiality provisions, you know, have guarantees in your policies for a fair and timely investigation, you know, designate someone in the company to oversee this process. Um, and very, very important. Have anti have an anti-retaliation policy, basically saying that you know reporting some kind of um, discrimination that's going on in your organization will not result in any kind of retaliation. Um, you definitely, definitely don't want to open yourselves up to a claim by an employee that they felt intimidated, they felt that they would be retaliated against. If they came forward and you know and spoke honestly about a discriminatory situation or really any other kind of legal violation, so um, these are really important, you know, sort of low-cost, high-benefit things you can do to help protect you and your organization. Um, sexual harassment training. So in California, you need to have um, 50 or more employers um, have to provide that kind of training on a periodic basis. Um, there's some regulations that relate to you know what has that training has to constitute and who should do it. Um, it's true in a lot of states. I would encourage you. You know, you may not be 50 employees have that training. It may not be a strict regulatory requirement. But again, it, the fact that you're creating a culture um, where it's being communicated very clearly that discrimination of any kind is not permitted in your organization is going to serve as a defense for you. Um, And also you are going to educate employees um, about situations that they may not have considered um, to having been discriminatory and, you know, help them make the right choices through that kind of training. So again, policies and procedures and training. So let's say it comes to it though. Um, You know, what do you do? How do you respond to a case of of harassment? Um, So the first thing I would say is if you have a bona fide case of harassment, um, and what I mean by a bona fide case is, um, you know, you've gone through your policy and procedure process. um, The responsible person in your organization has done an investigation. And it's become fairly clear that you have, you know, a credible situation certainly be true if the person hired a lawyer and you received a lawsuit or you received a demand letter regarding the harassment um call legal counsel talk to an employment lawyer talk to someone who knows what to do um and and i say this because the timing the nuances of responding to these kind of cases um are really important and as expensive as it might be to hire an attorney in that kind of situation, you are probably going to save yourselves money in the long run. Um, so definitely do that. And, you know, act swiftly, act decisively, act transparently. Um, and that's going to help in both the short term and the long term. And what I mean by that is um, if you need to separate someone from their manager, you um, do it quickly, do it decisively, do it transparently. If it's clear that there's a situation where there's a bad relationship, even if it doesn't reach the level where you, you know, that harassment would have been proven, um, you know, separate those people. Try to reassign an employee to, you know, a place where there, you know, that if there were harassment, it's not going to be ongoing and that employee feels safe, you um, it's not going to hurt you in your overall legal claim. It's actually not admissible when you do something like that. Um, you, you know, the lawyer for the other side can't come back and say, well, you reassigned them. That's why that doesn't that prove that you knew that there was discrimination. That's not the case. Um, do it anyway. Do it because it's the right thing to do and do it because it's going to protect yourselves um, from risk. So, you know, a couple of other things. You know, you already have your policies and procedures and you've done your investigation. Um, You know, also think through big picture sense on a yearly basis, your policies. Are they working? Are they clear enough or are they ambiguous? Do they need to be rewritten? Um, You know, make sure that you're taking a proactive step with respect to a lot of these things. Don't wait for a claim to happen. Take a proactive step. And again, that's because it's the right thing to do. To do, It's going to prevent problems. It's going to detect potential problems. But it's also going to serve as a defense for you that you can prove and document this, that you've done that on a periodic basis. Um, a couple of things to, t- to think about as well. Retaliation, um, you know, big no-no. Make it very, very clear in any steps you're taking, you know, with regard to a complaining employee about discrimination, that nothing you're doing is retaliatory. So if you need to reassign that person for logistical reasons, you know, make sure that that employee and that you're documenting the reasons why, and that it's not a demotion, um, or something like that, because that again, can be seen as, uh, as retaliatory. Um, I would also say, you know, add to this, you know, given the theme that we were talking about before, you know, do damage control, um, both internally and externally, speak to the right people, make sure, you know, these things are going to get out, we all try to keep confidentiality to the extent you can, but be transparent, Um, make sure your employees who need to know what's going on do know what's going on and that um, they have the confidence that the right and correct steps are are being taken. Um, So, you know, Think about um, um, th- think about acting in a way that um, you know that th- th- that alleviates risk and make sure that you're getting um, the right guidance and the right advice um, for people. So uh, you know, on that note, we talked a little bit about um, documentation and specifically, you know, when you have an employee with disciplinary type of issues, um, how you should proceed. So. Um, you know, let's let's think about the issue of documenting um, employee behavior. So, you know, again, like I said, do it consistently. Don't wait till right before termination. Um, any kind of evidence or write ups or any kind of probationary things that you're doing um, is going to be sort of less weighty and less taken seriously you know, if you really only started on them 24 hours before a termination, if you can show a pattern and practice of bad conduct and behavior <coughs> over the course of months, if you can show that you spoke to that employee, you know, explained to them their misconduct, encourage them to fix it, told them that you'll be, um, you know, evaluating them in another couple of months, that's all going to be to your benefit. Um, and, you know, the important thing to remember is that even small infractions can add up to support your justification for an adverse employment action. So resist the urge to, you know, ignore a lot of little things um, because you might look back in a year and say, this person really deserves to be terminated, but it's going to be a difficult one because I never, um, you know, I never really told them they shouldn't come back late from lunch, um, et etc. et cetera. And then, um, you know, you hurt yourself from a defensive perspective, but you also hurt yourself from an employee management perspective because everybody sees that in your organization. And when, you know, a certain employee is seen as getting away with things. Um, first of all, it encourages other bad behavior and also, um, can hurt morale and, um, and, you know, among your employees. So be really careful about the effects that some of this stuff could have. Um, You know, establish a policy for what gets written up and what doesn't. Um, You make sure you're treating everyone the same. Um, You know, just because something, I would say, is an oral warning um, doesn't mean you can't document the fact that you've given an oral warning. Um, I think people tend to get caught up with, well, if I just tell the person orally, you know, going back to this example of coming late for work, Um, There's no evidence of that. Well, you can write that up. You can have someone have one of your colleagues with you when you give that oral warning um, as a witness and then document that that's been done. It doesn't always have to rise to the level of a written warning. Um, You know, it can be, I guess, slightly more weighty if it is, Um, but it doesn't have to be. And you can, you know, everyone manages in in a sort of different style and it might be more appropriate for you and your organizational culture to talk about things orally more than in written warnings, which, you know, can sometimes escalate a situation more than it needs to. Um, you know, it's a good idea to have employees sign on to written warnings and even sign on to coaching opportunities. Um, you know, what I mean by that is if a person is, you know, has issues, let's say, with relations with potential clients, well, you know, document the fact that you've coached them um, on that and provided a training for them on something like that, Um, you know, maintain. And and the other thing I would say is just because an employee leaves um, your employee, um, don't immediately throw out their... um, personnel file the statute of limitations lease on california for a lot of the types of claims that can be brought by employees um, is three years so keep them for more than three years because you may think that you're not going to hear from that employee ever again but it could be that two years down the line um you catch a lawsuit from the employee who just got you know might have had a hard time finding a similar position and it just didn't come out that they're angry about, you know, the separation from your organization, um, until then. So, um, you know, that can be, and, and by the way, two years down the line, it's going to be much more, you know, even more important that you documented things because, you know, your witnesses, other employees, et cetera, et cetera, may have moved on to other positions as well. And it may be really difficult to get them to, you know, recall or come in and testify on your behalf about the behavior of somebody. Um, so, you know, be sensitive to that as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the issue of severance pay, a lot of people ask me from time to time, do I have to give an employee severance pay, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, severance pay is not required unless it is um, by some kind of contract that you had um, with the employee, but sometimes it might be a good idea. Um, and that's because, you know, you can, uh, you can offer severance pay um, in exchange for the employee you know, waiving certain claims that they might have against your organization. So be very careful about this because there's a lot of state law nuances in this. Um, And there are requirements, for example, in California, that um, these potential claims have to be stated very clearly um, as to what they are. So, you know, don't just willy-nilly go off and... um, you know, offer someone a certain payment in exchange for waiving claims. These things have to be documented properly in different states, have different rules as to what kind of claims can be waived um, and, um, you know, how you have to um, reach an agreement about that and document that agreement. Um, so final paycheck, um, you know, as well, this comes up a lot in terminations because often, Um, You need to terminate someone with immediacy and it might not be, you know, at payday or, or a person resigns out of the blue, you know, sometimes as a result of some kind of adverse employment thing that's going on. Um, Do your best to issue that final paycheck with immediacy. Um, It's especially true if you make a termination. Um, In California, though, you do have 72 hours following um, the employee's notice to pay that final paycheck. Um, Again, it can be different in different states, so be careful of that. Um, And make sure that with that final paycheck, in addition to regular compensation, that you're also reimbursing that employee for accrued and outstanding business expenses um if there's accrued paid time off um you know you'll probably have a company policy as to if and how that gets paid out um and any other benefits that are owed by the employee so be very careful about that because your final paycheck isn't final really until it includes um you know all of that and you know again there's waiting time penalties at least in california um, if you don't timely pay someone what they deserve on their final paycheck Um, and that's true in a lot of states so um you know be careful uh be careful about that um let's talk a little bit about non-competes um this is something that's really a creature of state law so you have to um be very sensitive to how these apply. And what a non-compete is, is, you know, very often an employer is in a pretty competitive field and, you know, they don't want their key employees going off and working um, for somebody else if they leave their organization. And, you know, there's some good reasons for this. A lot of times you're sharing um, confidential information with an employee or different kind of business practices. And you want to make sure, and you know, it's, uh, it stands to reason why an employer wouldn't want someone to come in, work for them for a month, learn all their trade secrets, and then go work for a competitor. Um, in a lot of states, though, these are really difficult to enforce. The law kind of frowns on limiting um, an individual's you know, right to work for a certain employer. Um, under California, they're generally um, not enforceable. And um, you know there a few exceptions to this, um, which are you know for example a trade secrets provision. Um, you can mandate that an employer that an employee not uh, divulge any trade secrets they've learned at your organization, confidentiality information, things like that. Um, and you can go ahead and enforce that. Difficult to prove. Um, but it's probably something you should have in your employment contracts. I think it's a best practice, um, you know, and, and keep that in mind. Um, So let's hit one, um, you know, one last thing and that's job references. Um, And this is a question that I, that I hear a lot because, um, you know, giving someone a reference for a position um, can be dicey. A lot of times someone leaves your organization because things weren't exactly going well, Um, even if it's not purely a termination. And even if it's not, um, you know, a resignation that was fully as a result of dissatisfaction, often there's elements in that. Um, And, you know, there's nothing, although there's really no law that prohibits you um, from giving an honest review, um, you can open yourself to a defamation claim if you say something that, um, you know, is a misrepresentation or not true. And that's difficult because, you know, obviously that can be a little bit subjective in the eye of the beholder. Um, so for that reason, the, uh, um, for that reason, many times employers will take a position from a policy perspective that, They will only confirm employment, that means dates of employment and position and title, Um, but they won't give either a positive or a negative um, reference to an employee. Um, You know, think that that's something that that you want to think about internally in your organization of what works for you. you know, it it can it can be a little bit of a of a harsh kind of policy, but it's one that I see increasingly a lot of organizations are doing. Um, and so, with that, we're gonna we're gonna close for today. Um, I hope you all enjoyed um, the information. You know, again, just to repeat, a lot of this is um, can be California specific, and a lot of employment laws are um, creatures of state law. But the issues that we raised um, are certainly common everywhere. And um, I hope you use the information to sort of, um, you know, become sensitive, become aware of a lot of the concerns um, regarding addiction treatment and employment. And, um, you know, when you do have questions that need to be answered, that you go to the right people um, and that, um, you know, first and foremost, and, and really mainly that you establish, um, you know, an organizational culture that's compliant um, with these kinds of things, because that's not only going to shield you from liability, but also create a stronger organization, um, you know, from a business and delivery of care perspective as well. So thank, um, thank you all very much for your attention today. Um, and have a great rest of your day